Turn to the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke chapter 4, <clears throat> Luke chapter 4. Last week we saw Jesus baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist. We saw the heavens opened, the Spirit of God descend on him in the form of a dove, and we heard the voice of God the Father saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. We also learn that we are born in the line of the first Adam, the lowercase s, Son of God, which we saw Jesus' genealogy go back to in a roundabout way. We were born in that lineage of the first Adam, the lowercase s, Son of God, but we can be plucked out of His line and placed in the lineage of Jesus Christ, the last Adam, the capital S, Son of God. Now on the heels of that information... We're going to see this morning the last Adam, the capital S Son of God, experience what the first Adam, the lowercase s Son of God, experienced in the wilderness. So Adam experienced something in the garden that Jesus is going to experience in the wilderness. And Adam fell in the garden, he fell in paradise, and brought about a world of sin. We're going to see Jesus stand firm in the wilderness and be victorious in the wilderness so that he could bring about paradise. You see how he undoes what Adam did? And we're going to see that this morning in Luke chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 down through 13, and we're going to see Jesus, the last Adam, do what Adam, the first Adam, could not do uh, in much different circumstances. In Luke chapter 4, let's begin reading in verse number 1. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. I want to stop there, and this really doesn't have anything to do with the message, but I think we need to be reminded of the reality that sometimes the Spirit leads you into the wilderness. You know, we live in an age and a time when you turn on the television and you've got all the sequined suit-wearing, limousine-riding, jet-flying preachers on television telling you that if you're living the way you're supposed to be living and if you're giving to them the way you're supposed to be giving to them and you've got faith and God loves you and, and God's pleased with you, then God's going to bless you and He's going to pour out on you all kinds of prosperity and all kinds of... Do you know what those preachers are doing? Those preachers are taking your idol prosperity and possessions and they're setting it up for you to worship by coming to their quote-unquote churches and giving them your money that's all it is it's another form of idolatry and they just may wave a bible around but it's idolatry and it puts into our minds that if something goes wrong then god must not be happy with me if something goes wrong i must not be in god's will if things aren't working out then i must not be pleasing to god and the reality is jesus was full of the holy spirit and the Spirit of God led him into the wilderness. And I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, none of us and none of those prosperity gospel preachers are any fuller of the Spirit or led by the Spirit than Jesus was. And Jesus was led into the wilderness. So if you find yourself in the wilderness, it may be because you have sinned and the consequences of your sin have led you there. And it may not be. It may just be that God has got you in the wilderness. For his purposes. He led Jesus into the wilderness. So Luke 4, let's just start back over in verse 1 now that I got that out of my system. And look at verses 1 through 4 at this first temptation, this first experience he had in the wilderness. 
says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days. He was led around in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Jesus goes to the Scriptures, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. Man shall not live on bread alone. Now, Jesus is approached by Satan. Obviously, he's been in the wilderness for 40 days. Obviously, he's hungry. Obviously, Satan knows he's hungry. He comes to him. He tempts him. Hey, turn those stones into bread. Prove to me that you're the Son of God. Prove to everybody that you're the Son of God. Turn the stones into bread. And Jesus reaches into the Word of God, the Scriptures, and he quotes for him this Scripture. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Now, where does Jesus get that scripture from? He gets that scripture from all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 8. So I want you to turn. I hope you brought your Bible. I want you to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 8 with me because we're going to see the context of a lot of what's going on here this morning so that we can get a better grasp of, of the meanings of it and the implications of it. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. This is where Jesus pulls this verse from, and this is the context in which this verse takes place. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. Now, as you're turning to Deuteronomy chapter 8, I want, I want us to grasp three things from this text. We're not going to preach on this text. I just want to point out three things from this text as we read through it, and then we're going to go back to Luke chapter 4, and hopefully the light bulb is going to come on about what's happening here in Luke 4. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 8, in verses 1 and 2, what I want you to see is that God led the children of Israel through the wilderness for 40 years to test them. Have you got that? God led the children of Israel through the wilderness for 40 years to test them. Verses 1 and 2 of Deuteronomy chapter 8, All the commandments that I'm commanding you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Do you see that? God led the children of Israel through the wilderness for 40 years to test them. Is that pretty clear? Second thing I want us to see is found in verse number 3. He led them out of Egypt by Moses. And he fed them with bread from heaven. Verse 3 says, He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Do you recognize that verse? That's the verse Jesus pulls from Deuteronomy chapter 8 to quote to the devil. He humbled the children of Israel. He let them be hungry. He fed them with manna, which they did not know, that he might make them understand that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. The Lord is using the testing, 
in the wilderness and their hunger to teach them that their lives are sustained by the provision of the Lord. And if you look in verses 4 through 10, what you find out is that their clothing did not wear out, their feet did not swell up. Every, God took care of every part of this journey for them. God, God provided for them and God sustained them through this journey. He led them out of Egypt by Moses and fed them with bread from heaven. The third thing I want us to see, not specifically in this text, but true of Scripture. Moses failed God. Moses failed God. He got angry. He took his staff and he struck the rock when God told him to speak to the rock to bring forth water for these complaining, murmuring Israelites. And he drew back and he struck the rock. And God said, because you acted this way, you will not go into the land. You failed, Moses. You're not going to go into the land. But Joshua would lead them into the promised land. Okay, so I want you to just get those three things in order to get the context of what Jesus pulls out of Deuteronomy to quote to the devil. God led the children of Israel through the wilderness for 40 years to test them. He led them out of Egypt by the hand of Moses and fed them with bread from heaven. But Moses failed God and Joshua was the one to lead them into the promised land. Now that we've gotten to the context, let's go back to Luke chapter 4 and look at verses 1 through 4 again. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. Now do you see some similarities here that the children of Israel experienced and that Jesus experienced in the wilderness. God led the children of Israel through the wilderness for 40 years to test them. God led Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days to test him. God led the children of Israel out of Egypt by the hand of Moses and he fed them with bread from heaven. God saves his people today from the world which is often called Egypt and he feeds us spiritual bread from heaven. Moses failed God and Joshua led the people of Israel into the promised land. Moses has failed us. Moses represents the law. The law has failed, and the new Joshua, which is Jesus' name, Joshua, will open the door for the promised land to us through his death and his resurrection. Jesus goes back to this passage of Scripture, out of all of his arsenal that he has in his mind, and he pulls out Deuteronomy chapter 8 and quotes verse 3. And he's not just quoting verse 3 because the devil's talking about bread. He is subtly pointing us to the fact that he is not like the first Adam. He is not like the children of the first Adam. He is not like the children of Israel who will get hungry and who will complain and who will long for the bread of this earth. No, he is the ultimate fulfillment of all of the promises of God and he is ultimately the fulfillment of the promise of salvation and our future hope. Man doesn't live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. In Luke chapter 4, verses 5 through 8, we come to the second temptation. It says, he led, them, he led him up, Satan led Jesus up, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. 
Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So now Satan picks Jesus up in some shape or format and takes him to a high pinnacle and shows him all the kingdoms of the earth in a moment of time and says, Jesus, listen, if you want all of this, we can shortcut this process. Instead of you having to go to the cross and be put to death and be buried and be resurrected and send out missionaries and send out preachers and send out teachers and send out the gospel in order to bring people to you from every nation, tongue, and tribe. I can give you every nation, tongue, and tribe right now if you'll just drop on your knees and worship me. That's what I wanted in the beginning when you kicked me out of heaven. Just fall on your knees and worship me when you can have it all. And Jesus goes back to the scripture and says, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Where does this come from? Again, Deuteronomy. For those of you that don't like reading Deuteronomy, Jesus has quoted Deuteronomy twice thus far as he faces the devil. And Deuteronomy 6 and verse 13, this is where Jesus gets this passage of Scripture. This is where Jesus gets his defensive quote. It says, You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. Now, Deuteronomy is a summary of the law. That's why when you read through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and then you get to Deuteronomy, it all seems like a lot of repetition. It seems like it's repeating a lot of what you've already heard. What's happened is just before the children of Israel go into the promised land, just before Moses goes up on the mountain to die, Moses gives them a summary of the law. He gives them Deuteronomy. He wants to be sure. He wants to be sure that they understand what is included in the law. He wants to make sure that they don't stumble and fall as they cross over the boundary into the promised land. He wants to make sure they remember God's standards for them. So he takes the whole law of God and he summarizes it into the book of Deuteronomy. It's a reminder from Moses before they go into the land. Now, why would these Israelites need such a reminder? Why would they need such a verse like Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 13 in that reminder? Well, the reason they need Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 13, you shall fear only the Lord your God and you shall worship him and swear by his name, is because if you go back to Exodus chapter 32, you find out that they were not always so faithful. Exodus chapter 32, go there with me and look at what happens. Exodus chapter 32, beginning in verse number 1. Exodus 32, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Moses is up on the mountain speaking with God. These Israelites are scared to approach the mountain because it is thundering, it is quaking, it is burning. They're afraid to approach the mountain. Moses stays on the mountain a bit too long, in their opinion, and they think, well, maybe Moses got killed. Make us another God. How fickle can a people be? In verse number 2, Aaron said to them, Okay, 
Sounds good. Why don't you tear off the gold rings which are in your ears, in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Sure he is. You just have to shake your head. This went from my ear into this calf that Aaron carved, and this is what led me out of Egypt. Verse number 5, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. And the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down at once, for your people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now think about this. Israel has been delivered from Egypt They've passed through the water. They've passed through the Red Sea on dry ground. They've been led into the wilderness. And in no time, literally no time, they are worshiping something besides the one true God. And it's no coincidence that Jesus, that Satan would meet Jesus in the wilderness and seek to incite him to worship. He has just passed through the waters. He has just passed through the waters of the Jordan and he's just been led into the wilderness. Maybe he would have a weak moment like the children of Israel did. It's no coincidence that Jesus pulls the first commandment out in his response. What is the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. Lastly, we come to the third temptation in Luke chapter 4. We're going to go back to the Old Testament one more time, though, so hang on. In Luke chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, we see the third temptation. It says, He led him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So now Satan, he's failed by trying to make Jesus turn stones into bread. He has failed by trying to get Jesus to worship him. This worked for Israel. Why isn't it working for Jesus? Now he says, I'll tell you what, let's go up to the pinnacle of the temple and let's just see if you're really who you say you are. Throw yourself off the temple because you want to play with Scripture, Jesus? Let me play with Scripture. The Bible says the angels will catch you if you're really who you say you are. How does Jesus answer this one? Jesus goes back to Scripture and he quotes it rightly. Basically, he says, don't pull this out of context, Satan. The Bible says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Where does he get this? I'll give you a guess. Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. And what happened at Massa? Satan knew what happened at Massa. Jesus knew what happened at Massa. All he had to say was, don't put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. 
What happened at Massa? They tempted the Lord. Go back to Exodus one more time, chapter 17. We're going to look at verses 1 through 7, and we're going to see the context that Jesus pulls this passage of Scripture from, this verse of Scripture from, Exodus chapter 17, beginning in verse number 1. Exodus chapter 17, beginning in verse number 1, says, All the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin according to the command of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Verse number 3, But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. Verse 5, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. This time God told him to strike. The next time God tells him to speak, but he's had enough. So he just draws back and strikes. So don't get these two incidents confused. He's being obedient now. He strikes the rock. He does this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And we know that water comes out of that rock. It's an amazing thing that uh, Saudi Arabia has now uh, made it possible for you to get on an airplane, fly to Saudi Arabia, walk in with a passport. It's a more amazing thing that they are allowing for the first time Christians to come in and tour Christian sites that have up until this point been fenced in with razor wire and armed guards protecting them at most times. And one of those sites is a huge rock. It's, I don't know how tall it is. It's taller than you would imagine. It's a, it's, a, it's a huge rock, and it's almost heart-shaped. It's got a split right down the middle of it, and at the bottom of that split, you can see water erosion. And the, and the tradition says that's the rock Moses struck because water is poured out of it. And it won't be long, and believers will be able to go see the rock. Also, Mount Sinai is there, but that's another story. Moses strikes this rock and water begins to pour. The rock splits and water begins to pour out of the rock. And look at verse number 7 of Exodus chapter 17. He named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying what? Is the Lord among us or not? So the children of Israel are in doubt. Is God among us or not, Moses? If he's among us, why are we going to die of thirst? If he is among us, Moses, tell him to give us some water. Prove it by giving us some water. So Moses strikes the rock. Water comes out of the rock. But God is not pleased with them. He's not pleased with them because they did not have faith that he was among them. And he was upset because they said, Is the Lord among us or not? He brought you out of Egypt. With miracles. He brought you out of Egypt with a mighty arm and an outstretched hand. He caused you to pass through the waters of the Red Sea on dry ground. He led you in the wilderness with a pillar of fire by day, by night, and a pillar of cloud by day. He's provided you bread to eat. Is he among us? What more evidence do you need that he's among you? 
You've tested the Lord with your lack of faith. And now Satan comes to Jesus and he pulls the same thing he pulled on the children of Israel. Is God really here? If you're the son of God, if you're really the son of God, God will catch you. Is he among us or not, Jesus? Prove it. And I would just guess Jesus' wheels turned and thought, the prophets prophesied of me, Satan. The angels announced my conception and my birth. Shepherds rejoiced. Magi paid homage. A mad king was so threatened by me that he sent soldiers to try to murder me. John the Baptist pointed me out to all of the people. The heavens were ripped open. The Spirit of God came down upon me, and the voice of my Father said, This is my beloved Son. What more evidence do I need, Satan? Test the Lord by jumping from the temple? I don't think so. His word is sufficient. Now we've walked through this, and what's the point? You, know, you, may, you may think the, the point is, is, is warning. It's warning us how Satan works, because we see it in the garden, we see it in the wilderness with Israel, we see it with Jesus, we see it in our own lives. How does Satan work? Well, number one, he, he, he causes us with our flesh to be easily obsessed with the temporal These Israelites got obsessed with bread. They got obsessed with meat. They got obsessed with water. Jesus comes on the scene. He's hungry. Satan thinks he can get him to be obsessed with bread and turn the stones into bread and follow his stomach, follow his flesh. We we want to listen to this warning that we are so easily, easily obsessed with the temporal. We put our energy into making money and more money and putting back more money. We put our energy into getting more stuff, bigger houses, fancier cars, nicer clothes. We put our energy into getting promotions. We put our energy into getting power. We put our energy into this life. We pour so much of our energy into this world and so little in the world to come, not realizing that this world is a vapor that will be gone like that in eternity will be forever yes we should be warned about our obsession with the temporal we need to be warned that our hearts are idle factories that's what john calvin said that our hearts are little idle factories they're just constantly cranking out another idol for us to worship the children of israel make them a molten calf to worship and satan comes to jesus and says why don't you just fall down and and worship me jesus why because We as human beings like to worship things besides God. We like to worship our money. We like to worship our properties. We like to worship our prestige. We like to worship. And if we're too holy, you know, to admit we worship those things, what we often do is we say we worship Jesus, but we we form Jesus in our own image. So that we like, you know, the Jesus I worship is the Jesus I like. The God I worship is the God I like. I've just kind of taken the Bible and made me a God, made me a Jesus that I like, and I worship that one. I don't like the one that sometimes comes out of the pulpit. I don't like the one that I sometimes hear about from other ways. So I'm just going to block that out, and I'm going to keep worshiping my little Jesus that I made in my image. It's idolatry. Because the Jesus we're supposed to worship is supposed to come from this book. What is he like according to this book? We need to be warned because we are so easily obsessed with the temporal. We need to be warned because our hearts are idol factories. We need to be warned because we have such a tendency to lose faith. When the children of Israel, is the Lord among us or not? Forgetting all that he's done. Jesus 
Is God among you or not? Jump from the temple. Prove it. We are so tempted to lose faith, forgetting what all God has done for us in the past. And the Bible says without faith, it is impossible to please Him. Satan just strikes at Jesus. And the same places he struck at people throughout history, the easy, the easy. I mean, this should be a this should be an underhanded toss. He should be able to knock it out of the park. Obsession with the temporal, but with Jesus, it was strike one. Maybe his heart's an idol factory. Strike two. Maybe I can cause him to lose faith. Strike three. Satan, you're out. But he usually he usually gets at least a single double with us, doesn't he? The point of this story is not just warnings about how easy it is for us to fall. The point of this story is not just how to defeat the temptations when they come. What did Jesus do over and over? He went to Scripture, didn't he? He went back to the Scripture. And yes, we need to use the Scripture. We need to know the Scripture. We need to go back to the Scripture. That's one of the reasons we're challenging you as a church to be faithful, to memorize Scripture. Be in the Word of God. Read the Scriptures each day this week. Memorize a Scripture. Hide it in your heart. Be in the Word of God so that when temptation comes, yes, we go to Scripture. Yes, we need to know the Scripture. But that's not the moral of the story. The moral of the story is not three soft areas that we often fall to temptation in. The moral of the story is not, here's how you defeat Satan with the Scriptures. The moral of the story is that Jesus is the last Adam, the capital S, Son of God, who unlike the first Adam, the lowercase s, Son of God, suffered every temptation that Satan could throw his way, and he overcame them. Luke 4 and verse 13, when the devil had finished every temptation, when he had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Moral of the story is Jesus, unlike us and unlike Adam, perfectly, fully, completely resisted every temptation and overcame Satan in the wilderness so that he could bring us out of the wilderness and into paradise. The first Adam fell in paradise and led us into the wilderness. The last Adam stood strong in the wilderness and will lead us into paradise. Hebrews 4 and verse 15, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. The first Adam was without sin before the temptation came, but not after the temptation came. We, the children of Adam, were not without sin before the temptation, nor after the temptation. But Jesus, the last Adam, was without sin before and after the temptation. And that sets him far apart from any of us and he's provided us the victory he has resisted temptation for us and he has overcome Satan for us and he has provided us victory and the devil was forced to leave and look at what happens in verse 14 it says Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit he was filled with the Spirit and the Spirit led him into the wilderness and he stood firm and when he left the wilderness he returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit he had not been diminished one iota he was still Filled with the Holy Spirit of God. He was still perfectly righteous. He was still perfectly holy. And he returned to do his work in the power of the Holy Spirit. Aren't you thankful this morning that Jesus faced the devil for us? And Jesus conquered the devil for us. And Jesus was perfectly righteous for us. 
Aren't you thankful that we depend on him for our righteousness and not ourselves? Or not a priest? Or not a pope? Or not a prophet? Or not an apostle? Or not anybody but Jesus Christ? Is that who you're resting in this morning? Is that who you're depending on this morning? See, Jesus came to this earth and he lived a triumphant, victorious, holy, pure, and righteous life. And he went to the cross and he died on that cross for your sin, for my sin, and was buried in a barred tomb and rose from the dead on Sunday morning so that we sinful children of Adam can bring our sin and our unrighteousness and we can exchange it for Jesus' perfect righteousness. And we can be plucked out of the line of the first Adam and we can be adopted into the line of the last Adam who lived the life God requires of us and who was triumphant and victorious over the devil in our place. Do you trust him? Do you know him? If not, we want to encourage you to consider repenting of your sin and believing the gospel message and embracing the gospel message this morning before you leave this place. Would you bow with me? Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the life of Jesus who resisted every temptation perfectly and lived the righteous, holy life in our place and died a death that our sin deserves for us so that we could be made righteous, so that we could be made holy, so that we could be made pure, not rely on our own efforts, not rely on our own abilities, not rely on our own performance, but we can rely upon the perfect performance of Jesus Christ. And in that, we celebrate and have rest. God, if there's a person here who doesn't have that rest, who doesn't have that peace, who doesn't have that assurance, I pray that you would stir in their hearts right now to turn away from their sin, to throw themselves on your mercy and upon your grace and to come to you and to look to you for the salvation and the peace and the rest and the assurance that they need. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.